Welcome to Dairy Intelligent, a podcast by VES Artex. Together we will meet dairy industry intellects and passionate dairy producers to discuss all things cows and connected technologies. Hello to everyone listening and welcome to VES Artex's podcast, Dairy Intelligent. I'm your host, Annie, and today I'm joined by Dr. Kevin Harvatine of Penn State University. So thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Harvatine. There are strong seasonal and daily patterns to milk yield and composition. And although the rhythms are rather robust, lighting and feeding times have an impact on these rhythms and provide an opportunity to increase milk component yields. Today, we're going to discuss what we know about these rhythms and highlight opportunities to better manage them. So, Dr. Harvatine, why don't you introduce yourself and give us some of your background? Yeah, thank you for, for having me. So I'm, uh, I'm on faculty here at, at Penn State. Um, I grew up on a dairy farm in Northeast Pennsylvania, did my undergraduate at Penn State, master's at Michigan State, and PhD at Cornell before coming back uh, about 14 years ago, and focus really around, around milk fat and, and milk production, and really have a lot of interest in how we can feed and manage cows to improve milk components. Well, welcome again. So to start off, do farms often see consistent changes in milk compositions across the year? Yeah, so very interesting that we do see consistent changes in in both yield and uh, composition of milk. Now, it can be a a little bit hard to see on farm-to-farm level, depending on exactly what they're doing as far as changing diets and um, other things going on at that farm. But it's definitely clear at the at at the milk market level, and I I often joke that we we always talk about the spring flush of of milk, that uh, well people say that uh, cows go out on pasture and increase milk yield. Well, we don't have many cows going out on pasture anymore, but we still see that increase in milk yield at the milk market level in the spring. And that's part of that that seasonal pattern. But we definitely see a, a consistent change in composition also across the year. Absolutely. That's a really interesting comparison I hadn't thought of that we definitely need to look a little bit deeper into that. Looking at milk value, what components should we be keeping an eye on? Yeah, so for most of our U.S. milk markets, we're in component price pricing. So um, farmers are really being paid for the pounds of fat, pounds of protein, and then other solids that they're they're shipping. And when you look at the values of those, you know, fat and protein will will bounce up and down on which one is is higher than the other. But they're the majority of of what the the cash flow that's coming back to the farm. Um, the other solids, which is really uh, a lot of the lactose that's driving the fluid volume, um, there's not very much income coming back from that. And we could actually argue a lot of times that you might be paying more for trucking uh, than you're actually getting paid for, for that lactose, depending on exactly where the market is. Uh, but our, our long term is we're trying to get people to look at fat plus protein yield in setting their production goals. For sure. So looking a little further into that, what are the biggest factors on milk fat and protein yield? Yeah, so a lot of things go go into that. And, you know, I, I'm a nutritionist, so I, I tend to take a, a nutrition heavy perspective on that. 
but we do want to step back and and recognize the the other factors. So definitely genetics are a big player in this, especially when we look at over time. So um, you know, just over about the last 10 years, we've increased average milk fat about 0.3 units across the country. And and when you look at the the genetic contribution, a lot of that is is attributable to g- genetics. Um, we've we've applied a lot of selection pressure on on farm. If we look from farm to farm, there's actually not much difference in genetic potential between farms, as long as they're they're Holstein herds comparisons, right, or Jersey herd comparisons. So within breed, um, farms aren't all that different in the genetic component. Um, there, there are definitely two two other things to look at from the non-nutritional side um, is looking at the short-term versus the, the long-term view of this. So, and the driver of, of milk yield versus milk composition. So if we're looking at fat yield, it's really milk yield times fat percent. It tells us how much fat yield we're getting. So there's some things we can do to manage that will increase milk yield and not change milk fat percent, and we increase fat yield. There's other things that we do that we don't change milk yield, but we increase fat percent. So uh, some things like keeping uh, your herd the right days in milk, uh, that helps maximize milk yield. You can maintain milk components and drive drive your yield that way. There's other things um, like keeping out of milk fat depression, um, providing fat supplements that would be nutritional ways in the short term that you're not going to have much of a change in milk yield, but you're going to increase fat, fat percent. So, you know, it's hard to split out on exactly what percent of the variation is coming from each of these components. And I don't know if we really need to get so much into that, that fight. What I like to say is, you know, keep a focus on the things that are influencing and try to manage each of those to move you in the right direction. Well, I think that's that's a great way to put it, focusing on, you know, what you have control over and can really hopefully get the biggest effect. Um, so I'd like to move into the, the big topic of seasonal rhythms um, with my next few questions. So often we associate heat stress with having a large effect on milk components. What is the difference between heat stress and seasonal rhythms? Yeah, so... Um, you know, they're, they're both major influences and I always have to be careful on this because I, I do a lot of, in my talks, I spend a lot of time talking about seasonal rhythms and I get done and, and people sometimes say, well, you don't think heat stress is a problem. And it's like, no, no, heat stress is a problem. It is, is a big factor, but they're two separate things. And the thing is, you know, dairymen see their milk fat concentrations go down in the summer. And they've traditionally looked at that and just blamed it on on heat stress. But when we look over data over decades, we see a really clear seasonal pattern where milk fat is highest January 1, lowest July 1. And it's a perfectly consistent pattern across the year that it doesn't just drop in June when it gets warm it's a consistent decrease from January to July, and it's the same every year. So to me, what's really convincing about that is that, um, you know, we have summers that are worse, better, come earlier, come later. If it was just heat stress, we we would see more variation from year to year, but it's a really consistent 
pattern. Now, if we look at the impact of heat stress, a, a really clean way to look at that is in experiments where they've put cows in heat chambers and turned up the heat. In that, you see a, a big decrease in milk yield when they're they're creating extreme heat stress, uh, but you actually see an increase in milk fat percent. Um, so that's a little bit different than what we see in the real world in that that seasonal pattern, but but definitely two two separate things. Um, you have this seasonal pattern that's being driven by that lengthening and shortening days, and then you have heat stress. And what I like to warn is that if you don't do a good job managing heat stress, you're going to stack those two on top of each other. And if you are losing a lot of milk yield from heat stress and losing production from that seasonal rhythm, you're going to be in a really bad spot in the summer. For sure. So how exactly do we avoid that that potential stacking? You know, how do we manage to reduce the additional effect of heat stress during those summer months? Yeah, so so we know a lot about managing heat stress and and we have a lot of engineering interventions that that we can do there. Um I I know those are investments in in um but there are things that we have a lot of data to demonstrate that we can get a production response, the repro responses, the health benefits um in in that's across both lactating and dry cows, right? So that it's not heat stress is in an area I, I do research in, but I've um, the the data I've seen is is very convincing, and we have we have good good opportunities for interventions there. The harder one is how to manage out of the seasonal rhythm. Um, you know, I I think our best approach there is to try to to maintain a long day of long photo period. So we want to have lights on for 16, 18 hours a day, but then we also need a dark period. And having lights on is actually a lot easier on modern dairies than getting a dark period. But from all of our understandings of these rhythms, that dark period is is just as important or maybe even more important than the, the light period. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure that we have, well, I know we don't have any data to show that we can go in and eliminate that seasonal pattern, but we have a lot of data to say that if you have 16, 18 hours of light and then the dark period that you'll get five to 10% more milk with no change in composition. So, so I think having good control of lighting is the best recommendation we can have right now. Obviously, daylight varies throughout the year and really depends on your your location. So yeah. do the same seasonal rhythms repeat every year? Yeah, so we've we've looked at seasonal rhythms across the country and um, both at the milk market basis from um, uh, USDA data, but then also from uh, data from DHI test days. And, and we see the same um, patterns of the rhythm from north to south in the U.S. and from east to west. Uh, we do see a little bit different in the amplitude. So mentioned we have highest milk fat July 1, lowest January, or sorry, highest milk fat January 1, lowest July 1. But the difference between highest and lowest is larger in the north than it is in the south. The timing of the rhythm is still the same. We also see a rhythm to milk yield. So that's actually highest milk yield is in April, lowest in is in September, October. And that actually switches that we see a larger difference between highest and lowest in the south 
than what we see see in the north. Um, you know, I, I always have people ask, well, what what happens in the, the southern hemisphere? And I've seen a little bit of data presented out of Brazil, and they actually see the opposite of, of our patterns as far as the month of the year, but it matches up to the the seasonal changes that they're seeing in the same biology that they're they have um you know uh, highest milk fat during their their short days and lowest milk fat during their long days as you said obviously lighting has a huge impact on milk yield um and earlier you touched on examples of long day and short day lighting can you expand upon that a little bit yeah, so it's a really neat data going all the way back to to the 1970s. So uh, original work was done at, at Michigan State and then carried on um, by by Jeff Dahl. Um, oh, I, I forget exactly how many experiments there are there, but it's been really consistent across over, over a half dozen experiments that um, long days with the dark period um, increases milk yield 5 to 10%. Um, it's eliminated by having lights on constantly. And there's there's uh, some additional data there that's uh, really interesting that actually short days during the dry period increase milk yield in the subsequent lactation. And that's also replicated quite, quite well. So the thinking is, is that that short day, uh, the whatever hormonal changes that are stimulated during that short day are better for mammary development so that when that cow calves, she has more mammary cells ready to make milk and is able to make more milk during that lactation. Switching gears a little bit from lighting and wanting to focus a little bit more on the the rhythms of milk yield. How do the rhythms of milk yield compare to fat and protein? If there's a difference, why is that? Seems like, so if we go to the the biology of this, um, these rhythms are basically that the, the brain is keeping track of what time of year it is. And it's it's um, learning what time of year it is based on uh, the lighting signals that, that it's getting. So one of those signals can be lengthening and shortening days. And of course, days shorten up to January 1 in, in uh, Northern Hemisphere and then lengthen again. So... Uh, that system seems to be controlling uh, milk fat and protein percent is the lengthening and shortening days. The other signal that that the brain can can get and is keeping track of is how much longer each day is than the day before or how much shorter it is. And I, I never quite appreciated this. I guess you you kind of feel like in the middle of winter, things aren't changing very much, but then you get towards March and it's like all of a sudden the days seem so much longer quickly and it is because they are getting longer faster near the equinox than they were during near the solstice um so the the other thing that the brain can be in training to is that change in daylight um so it seems like milk yield is actually being driven by a seasonal rhythm that's running off of that change in day length. So that's why we're it, you know, just from the timing of it, we're getting that maximal milk yield just after that that spring equinox when days are getting longer um, by the largest increment. So what do you recommend that dairies implement to make sure that they aren't hurting their peak production 
um, during those seasonal influxes. Yeah. So, so, um, you know, I, I'm always kind of careful to make recommendations without published controlled research. Uh, cause that's sort of the, the, the body of knowledge that I, I work off of is our, our published research. So we don't have many, um, controlled experiments about manipulating seasonal rhythms in the cow just because those experiments are really hard to do, right? So the data we do have is in that constant 16, 18 hours of light. So that's why I like to stick with that recommendation is, is saying that that right now the most um, solid data we, we have is around having that constant 16 to 18 hours. If we want to wander off the path of of, of data, uh, what would be really cool is to actually see if we could um, take cows through seasonal rhythms and go faster through the lower production part of the year and then make it slower during the higher production part of the year. And um, basically what it is is that... Um, the, we can change day length by usually up to about 40 minutes per day without jet lagging uh, in, in, in animals. So if you think about you fly across time zones, you get jet lag because your body's not able to reset to the new time fast enough. Well, you can adjust about 40 minutes per day and, and not have any issue. So what we could do, and this would be a really fun experiment to do, is that you have lower milk production during those longer summer periods well you could um go with large time change differences be through that part of the year and then during the other part of the year make very slow time change from day to day now that would take really great light control and i'm not sure that that we would be able to uh, pull that off on a lot of our modern dairies where we're trying to manage a lot of other things at the same time. But but there there may be some some sort of moonshot opportunities out there for the future. Well, that would that would definitely be such an interesting experiment to see really if you could really help yourself there and yeah. see see what would happen. It and I think that's used a little bit in in the poultry industry. So um they uh, growth rates are impacted by by day length and what my understanding is is they can start with like you know 20 plus hours of light and then um they'll be growing rapidly and then they'll adjust them down to shorter days to slow down growth so that they can catch up on bone development and then they'll go back up to 20 hours per day but it's not that they're switching from you know, 12 to 20, they're doing it in like half hour adjustments per day. So they adjust back up to get the, the growth back. So, so you know, they're, they're in a much different situation than we are in, in dairy, but I think we could, you, you could use some of the same biology if you, if you wanted. So we know that some breeds have higher fat yields than others. Does this have an effect on the seasonal and daily rhythms? Yeah, so we we've seen in in the data that we've looked at, the seasonal rhythms are uh, really highly conserved between breeds. Um, you get a little bit of a difference in the magnitude of the difference, and I think that comes in that if you take, for example, Jersey breed is higher in fat. So if you look at the percent change over the year, the percent 
is similar to Holstein's, but since they have more fat, they end up with a with a larger absolute difference between that that summer and winter. But we've we've seen it pretty pretty highly conserved. We've also looked at in Holstein's. There's a one SNP, the DGAT1 gene that explains you know probably half of the genetic variation in milk fat, and we see seasonal rhythms are similar there. We did a little bit of a look to see if we could find cows with a genetic type that did not have a seasonal rhythm. And you could think of that, that might be a good cow to have on your farm that wasn't influenced uh, by these seasonal rhythms. But we we were not able to find that within the, the database we have. But, you know, maybe that's something in the future that that the geneticists will figure out is to to breed for cows that that had less influence from the seasonal pattern. That would be so interesting. So hopefully some AI companies are listening into this podcast and want to look a little bit more into that trait. <laughs> well, if if you think about where these seasonal patterns come from, you know, they they were helpful or adaptive for that cow many, many years ago when she did not live in a nice, comfortable barn with the TMR being delivered every day, right? So um, so this preparing for those seasonal changes made it so that she had a higher survival during the winter. Um, you know, had, her calf had a higher survival rate. And now now we don't have that same environment, but that that same call it a habit is has been carried over. No, absolutely. So are there any other characteristics that can affect seasonal rhythms? Um, maybe the lactation stage. Um, I'm just trying to think if a, a farm's milking 2X or 3X or even with robots or even the housing type. Yeah, so um, the, the place that we've uh, looked at that is in uh, Diamond V uh, has a database that they've used for for many years plotting out seasonal patterns and and i'm sure a lot of the listeners had have seen their updates on that they've done a great job characterizing that and getting that that information out so um you know their their database um includes a lot more diversity in housing types and they have had that um recorded there so within that database we're able to look at you know dry lot versus um, freestall in in um, 2x and 3x and we were not able to see any differences differences in the seasonal patterns now I think if we start trying to manage out of these things um, you're probably going to be a lot easier to manage this within a big cross vent barn where you have better lighting control than in in open pens um, but but as the data is right now um, it, there, there's not a difference. Based on seasonal rhythms, what are some steps that you would recommend that dairies take to be set up for success? Yeah. So the first thing that I always like to talk about <clears throat> is, uh, you, so, so, you know, we've mentioned it's really hard to manage these, the manage the rhythm, right? Uh, but what we really need to do first is understand there's a rhythm and use it to set our goals across the year. Um, so, you know, I, I, I run into a lot of nutritionists that get really frustrated that, you know, a herd, a herd's milk fat was 4.1 in January, and now they're at a 385 and, and 
they're just getting beat over the head with a baseball bat saying you've screwed up my diet why did why have we lost 0.2 0.25 units of milk fat well that that's exactly what we'd expect that cow to do from the physiology of that seasonal rhythm um so so there's a couple problems that you can get into if you're not accounting for for this one is that in january if you're at a 40 you might think you're doing well, which when you should really be a little bit higher, right? Uh, so you had lost opportunity then. You may not identify a, a problem with milk fat depression at that point. The The other one is in, in the summer, you might be what I call chasing ghosts, right? So you can start spending money um, or doing some things to your diet that you risk losing yield trying to solve a problem that that doesn't exist because you know now you think you have some some level of milk fat depression when when maybe you don't so that that's the the one solid thing we can say is we know this is a repeating pattern really really consistent we need to be changing our goal across the year then we can more accurately and precisely know are we doing as good as we can um or do we have some some level of potential that we're leaving behind I think that's some really sound and tangible advice on keeping your goals consistent with the season, being able to be open to changing those goals for sure. Yeah. So we're now at the end of our conversation, um, but before we wrap up, I'd like to know what an animal-centered environment means to you. Yeah, so to, to me, that just means that we're um, designing facilities and managing facilities for for the cow, right? Um in just making sure that that we are doing things in in a way that matches to um, how that cow wants to live and, and wants to behave. Um, so we've talked a lot about seasonal patterns today, but the other area of, we do a lot of work with is daily patterns and daily rhythms. Um, and, and I think that's another place where you could think of that, that animal's environment that um, we we want to be thinking about what she wants to do across the day and how she wants to to behave, um, and it and it's not just about the stalls or the feed alley. Uh, to me, the lighting has a has a key impact here. Um, you know, I I I always like to to say on the daily rhythm side. You know, I think all of us have have lost a night of sleep at some point for you know studying or getting a big project done or up with a, a crying baby or flying across time zones right and you just feel terrible the next day um and and i think we want to be thinking about how we're we're having our housing and our management to make sure that we're not imposing those type of stressors on the cow and, and i think those things can be a little bit more difficult to see than just a poorly designed stall absolutely it was a really great way to wrap up and summarize this conversation. So thank you again so much, Dr. Harvatine, for your time and sharing your insights on how to better manage seasonal rhythms to have a positive effect on milk composition. And thank you again, everyone, for listening in, and we will see you in our next episode. Thank you for joining us for another Dairy Intelligent episode. We hope you have found some suggestions to improve cow comfort on your farm or simply just learn something new. If you have not already, 
please be sure to subscribe to our channel on your favorite podcast platform and let your friends know about us. We would love to have them listen and learn.